Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? Uh, it's good to be here at church. This is, I don't know, one of my favorite places to be. Um, so if you guys didn't know, I'm a teacher at a, a private Christian school, and we're getting very close to the end of the school year. And uh, when that happens, I don't know if any of you have ever been a teacher, but the kids start getting a little crazier, and uh, they, they know the end is near. And as, as for me, as, as a teacher, I told them, jokingly, of course, that uh, this time of year is when teachers uh, start evaluate all their, all, evaluating all of their life choices. And uh, <laughs> joking, of course, I, I, I love teaching and, and I love the kids. But um, like I said, we're, we're approaching the end of the year. And um, so Mike uh, asked me to teach today, and I was, I was glad to do it. And uh, it's always a, a blessing to be able to come up here and, and to do this. So... Um, uh, and I thank you guys for, for having me up too. And uh, let's uh, start off with a word of prayer. We're going to be uh, reading from uh, Acts chapter 3. I think eventually we'll get there. All of, oh, there we go. Okay, Acts chapter 3. If you guys uh, uh, can bow your heads as, as we turn there. Uh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for uh, allowing us to, to gather together and to uh, sing praises and to worship you, Father God. Um, Lord, thank you that you receive our, our, our worship and, and that you are pleased with it. Lord, I thank you for your word that we get to open up, that we get to read. Lord, that you use to, uh, to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for the work that you have before us, Father God. And as we... Um, Go through this uh, section of your of your word, a section of scripture, Lord. Uh, may you speak to each and every one of us, Lord. Uh, may may we have uh, ears that are open to hear and a heart that is open to receive, Father God. Uh, and may you may the words that come from me, Lord, be be your truth only and, and nothing of my own, Father God. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for every single. Uh, person in here, Lord. Uh, I pray for the youth in the other room, Lord. Thank you for uh, the discussions and the, the study that they're going to be doing. Uh, I, I pray for the, the uh, children on the other side of this wall, Lord, that uh, as they open up your word, Lord, that they would be able to, from their young age, understand it and even apply it to their young lives. Father God, I thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Usually I'm over there teaching the youth on, on a Thursday night, and what we've been doing in that room, we've been uh, taking a slow walk through the book of Acts. And we started in March, and we're, we're through the first two chapters. So as we do this, my goal as we trek through the book is to bring attention, to bring their attention to the fact that we as Christians are in a spiritual war. Uh, I, I call the study that, that we're doing preparing for war. Uh, so the first generation of Christians, those guys needed to be tough as nails. They needed to be as bold as lions to face the challenges that they faced as they took the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And if you think, and if you think it was all smooth sailing, you would be mistaken, right? Reading through the book of Acts, um, you can ask Paul, that it wasn't smooth sailing because he was literally shipwrecked during his quest to spread the gospel of Jesus. So the same thing is true for our generation of Christians. 
as well as for the next generation of Christians, our call is to participate in the same spiritual war that has been raging through the ages. And in order to do so, we must be well equipped. So tonight we arrive at chapter 3 of the book of Acts. And I've titled this message, Wounded. So, in the course of war, of course, we have casualties. We have people that sustain wounds. One of the unfortunate consequences of warfare is the wounds that people suffer. And that's no less true of our spiritual war that we have going on all around us. War wounds have resulted from the spiritual warfare, and they're obvious to all. Both believer and unbeliever alike ready, readily recognize that death and disease and destruction, all of those things plague our world. So the text that we're studying this evening focuses on a man who's crippled. He's, he's lame. His body is broken. And he gets a miraculous healing. But we, but we also need to understand that even though this was a real man with a very real infirmity, he helps us to think about the woundedness of our world in general. He helps us to think about the broken state of our humanity. So think back to Jesus when he wept over the death of Lazarus. And it wasn't necessarily because a dear friend of his was dead and gone. Jesus knew what he was going to do. If you read the passage in John chapter 11, you know that Jesus knew in advance that he was going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. So why the tears? So Jesus is, is witnessing the brokenness of our race as he sees his friend's mourn over the loss of Lazarus. He's witnessing the fallen state of man and the ravaging effects of sin on our creation. Yet Jesus proves with his mighty call, Lazarus come forth, that he himself is the resurrection and the life and that the one who believes in him, even though he dies, he will live. So as Jesus calls, the dead man in the tomb heard the voice of the Savior and he opened his eyes and he hopped out of that grave. Imagine that. The call of Jesus was powerful enough to be heard and understood and obeyed by a dead man. And he woke up. I know for myself, speaking personally, my voice is not strong enough or powerful enough to, to wake a sleeping teenager sometimes. <laughs> but Jesus' voice not only is able to awaken the dead man, but he was able to uh, reverse the process of decay. Remember, Mary told him, and I want to use the, the King James Version, uh, Lord, by this time he stinketh. So he reversed the process of decay and, re and he renewed the body of the deceased man. And then he follows that up by telling Martha, didn't I tell you, if you believe, you would see the glory of God. So him raising Lazarus from the dead, it was just a taste. 
It was just an appetizer, something much greater. So when Jesus was speaking about Martha seeing the glory of God, he wasn't just talking about God bringing a single dead person back to life only to get old and to die again. He wasn't talking about that specifically. Uh, he, he, in the same way, what we're going to read today, the lame beggar we, in, in Acts chapter 3, uh, he's going to get healed. Spoiler alert, he's going to get miraculously healed. Uh, his crippled leg are, are going to get strengthened and renewed. And all of this points to a much greater reality. It tells us of the reversal of decay and the renewal of the ruined. So we need to understand that Jesus promised one day to bandage up, to bandage up this wounded world. And more than that, actually, he's declared that he will make all things new. So if you're not there, we're, we're in Acts chapter 3, and I will read um, uh, in, in a little bit from uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, but before that, uh, some context. In chapter 2, we read of the day of Pentecost. If you remember, the Holy Spirit rushed into the room in which the disciples had gathered, and he empowered them, and he gave them the ability to speak in other languages. So the bystanders and the onlookers were stunned by what they heard. But little did they realize they, they hadn't heard nothing yet. So here comes Peter, bold Peter. He stands up, and he delivers an impassioned sermon to the curious and to the doubtful alike, everybody standing there. And he boldly declared the victory of Jesus over death by his resurrection. Peter then urges the crowd to repent and believe. And in fact, many do. Scripture records the number of people who are added to the count as being about 3,000. So we may, we may think, well done, Peter. Good job, right? 3,000 converts in one day? That's amazing. Sounds like Peter did his job really well. And he can go relax. Go take a vacation, Peter. Go fishing, right? Actually, no, right? The passage that we're going to read in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter three describes an event many days removed from that first sermon that Peter uh, preached. And as we read on through Acts, we are, we're going to see that Peter is on fire and that he stays on fire. He is not letting up, not even one bit. He's not taking his foot off the gas. It's full speed ahead. So with that, let's turn and, and read uh, chapters 1 through, I mean, not chapters, verses 1 through 10 in uh, Acts chapter 3. It says this, uh, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon, a man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he can beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the hand, by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet 
and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking, praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what happened to him. So, so as we see, this man had this physical infirmity, this physical impairment that prevented him from doing much in life. And we notice that suffering, sickness, death, and decay are all a part of life. It's a circle of life, right? It's, it's a consequence of sin entering the world. It's, a, it's the world's subjection to physical decomposition, and it affects everyone and everything. Nothing escapes. So this, this fact is probably not apparent to the, the youth that I usually teach on Thursday nights, being all young and full of energy and all of that. Uh, in their minds, they're, they probably think they're indestructible, that they're invincible. Sooner or later, however, everyone learns that nothing lasts forever. So the lame beggar that we read about in the passage, he knew all too well of the impact of sin because it hit him full force, rendering him unable to do basic things, things most of us take for granted, standing up, walking across the room, all of those types of things. Going back to uh, verse 2, it says, a man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. The text tells us that the man begging at the temple gate called Beautiful had been lame from birth. Elsewhere in Acts, we learn that this particular man is 40 years old. So imagine never being able to walk a single step in your life, never being able to work and earn a living, never able to to run and play as a kid. All the things that we experience in our lives, never has he been able to do that. But at least, at least he had someone or maybe someones to to carry him and to to dump him in front of the the temple gate called Beautiful, which is, is a big contrast, right? There's this poor, pathetic looking beggar in front of a gate called Beautiful. So, so they did that so he could plead with the people passing by to give him some spare change. And then what happens? He, he would collect his, his money and then wait for his ride at the end of the day and then scoop him up and, and take him somewhere to sleep for the night only to, to get up the next morning and do it all over again. And what kind of life is that? What kind of existence is that? So these questions, so this is often an excuse that unbelievers use to unbelieve, uh, to justify the claim that, well, God must not exist, you know, look at all of this, right? If God is so good, then why all the pain? Why all the suffering in the world? Why are babies born with abnormalities and deformities? Why do the good die young? Why does tragedy strike so often and so hard. So perhaps the, the man we read about, this lame beggar, 
Maybe he had the, such thoughts. Maybe he wondered why this had to happen to him. Why he, out of all of the people that he sees every day, why he has to have these legs that don't work. Perhaps he wondered why this happened to him. And then in John chapter 9, we read about another beggar. And maybe he had the same questions. He was a blind man. He was blind from birth. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and spread, it, spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, Yeah, he's the one. Others were saying, No, he, he, he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, Go to Siloam. And wash. And when I went and washed, I received my sight. So this guy, just like the uh, lame beggar in Acts, was born with his infirmity. He was born blind. Never had the light of the sun entered his eyes to produce pictures in the brain that we call vision. Never had he experienced the dazzling array of colors that God put into the spectrum. Never had he seen a friendly face smile at him. His whole life to that point had literally been spent in the dark. That was until Jesus came around. Then we, then we read that the disciples were certain that fault could be found in the parents of the man. Or even the man himself. They thought maybe he perpetrated some heinous act as a fetus. As ridiculous as that sounds. They thought his blindness must certainly have to be a punishment from God for some particularly awful sin. And we tend to think that too sometimes, don't we? When something bad happens to someone, maybe the thought crosses the mind, man, what did he do to deserve that? He must have done something really bad, right? The truth is, each one of us, each and every one of us, is just as big as a sinner as that lame beggar, as the blind beggar, or anyone else we could think of, beggar or not. We want to believe that there's something that separates us from the people who have really bad things happen to him. There has to be something there, right? Or else those bad things could very well, just as easily, happen to me. So, so this is actually simply life in a fallen world. In Luke chapter 13, we read this. 
At that time, some people came and reported to him, to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So we have to acknowledge that our sinfulness, each and every one of us, we land in the same boat as every other person who's ever lived. We all inherit that sin nature from Adam, every single one of us. And the truth is that we are all deserving of death. That's plain and simple. It's hard to hear though, right? It's hard to hear that we all deserve death. So in a sense, those Galileans that we just read about, they got what they deserve. And those 18 killed in the tower accident, they got what they deserve. The lame beggar and the blind beggar that we just read about, they didn't deserve any better than the lameness and the blindness that they got. In fact, no one deserves the next breath of air that sustains his existence. None of us do. It's only by the grace of God, right? But in another sense, what happened to the Galileans, the 18, the lame beggar, and the blind beggar, it's, none of that is due to the sinfulness above and beyond your average, everyday, friendly neighborhood, run-of-the-mill sinner like you and me, right? They didn't deserve it more than the others. But the point that we need to understand is what Jesus explains. You need to get right with God. Bottom line, that's what it comes down to. Because death is going to get everyone eventually. And tragedy is no respecter of persons. So the blind beggar, as we read, was healed. But the healing was not to be the climax of the story. It was just a means to an end. And the end being pointing people to God. Jesus links the physical to the spiritual, as we will note later. And then we can think about another healing that Jesus performed. And again, a similar pattern is noticed. Jesus heals the physical ailment, but he wants us to be concerned about the spiritual dimension. So we read in Matthew chapter 9 this. So he just got in a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then some men brought him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then told the paralytic, Get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given him such authority to men. 
So we read about this man, and here he comes on a stretcher. Clearly, he's on a stretcher and being carried around because he himself cannot move. If we read Luke's account of the situation, uh, he has some friends take him up onto a roof, dig a hole through the roof, and lower the stretcher in front of Jesus. And these men went to great lengths to park this paralytic man directly in front of Jesus. So it's not that this man was seeking an autograph from a famous Jewish rabbi. No, the obvious reason for getting this guy as close to Jesus as possible was for Jesus to heal the guy. To tell him, stand up and walk. To snap his fingers, to pray over his broken body, or whatever it was that Jesus decided to do to get this man up off of that stretcher. But we don't immediately get the healing, do we? We don't, that's not what happens at first. Jesus, to the surprise of everybody there, tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. Now this is a wait, what? Moment. And people there are like, did you hear what you said? Uh, what is he talking about, right? And then Jesus asks, if it's easier to tell a man your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk, and what we also need to think about reading through this is which is more important to receive, the physical healing or the spiritual healing? Which takes us to this, the fact that the man in our story was wounded spiritually as well as physically. So like the rest of humanity, the lame beggar was spiritually wounded. He was mortally wounded, in fact. He was spiritually dead with no hope of resuscitation. Let's return to the scene described in Acts chapter 3. Verses 3 through 5 say this. When, Peter and John about to ent- when he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. So this man asked for money from Peter and John. The disciples we read, don't have anything to give him. And even if they did, even if Elon Musk, Elon Musk uh, rides over in his Tesla and, and, and drops $44 billion in his, in his cup, in his beggar's cup, is, it, it wouldn't have made any ultimate difference. It would make no difference. All the money in the world cannot solve a spiritual problem. As Jesus famously said, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul. Money can't buy, uh, uh, a man can't buy his way into heaven, and there's no entrance fee at the gates of pearl. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus? Recall that uh, the rich man lived in luxury while there was a poor man named Lazarus who sat in front of his house, hoping for just a few breadcrumbs that the dogs didn't get to yet. The rich man dies one day and lands himself in a place of torment. He begs for a single drop of water to ease his agony. So we see the rich man, it got turned around on him. He starts becoming a beggar himself as he begs for water. But he doesn't get anything. And Abraham explains this to him. Luke chapter 16, Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things. 
just as Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here while you are in agony. So you may notice that people try to bandage up their spiritual wounds in a variety of ways. Some seek to accumulate wealth, thinking that money can fill the void in their lives. Others throw themselves into certain lifestyles or engage in certain practices that they hope will complete them, will bring them satisfaction, will bring them happiness. As varied as all these methods may be, the results are the same. It's emptiness. It's hopelessness. Have you ever noticed that the rich and famous are the most miserable people on the planet? Have you ever noticed that people who look like they have it all never actually have enough? And they never will unless they experience the saving grace of God. His grace is enough, as we sang about earlier. More than enough. More than stacks of cash and millions of adoring fans. Paul testifies to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he would, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So, what a great perspective to have. I wish I could always have that perspective that Paul did. Uh, So he saw that his affliction, his physical affliction, had a spiritual component to it. He realized, though he called this thorn in his flesh a messenger of Satan, it was nevertheless used by God for Paul's own good. So the blessing wasn't in the removal of the flesh, which he asked for three times and was denied. Paul came to understand that the thorn, whatever it was, kept him from pride and caused him to rely on the grace of God. And he was able to boast in his weakness. He was able to depend completely on the mighty power of Jesus. So there's an obvious lesson there for us, right? When troubles come our way, we shouldn't ask God, why me? We tend to do that. I tend to do that. We shouldn't be quick to ask God to quickly remove these troubles and take them far far away from us. Instead, we should be like Paul. Easier said than done, but we should be like Paul and use it as an opportunity to evaluate the spiritual. What can I learn from this trial? How can I use this thorn in my side to grow closer to God? And through it all, may I come to understand that God's grace is enough. Here's how Charles Spurgeon explains it. He says this, so I refuse, so though refused, Paul was answered, for he got something better than the taking away of the thorn in the flesh. The result was that grace, the grace given him, enabled him to bear the thorn and lifted him right above it, until he even rejoiced and glorified to think that he was permitted to suffer. Spurgeon also says of Paul's thorn. Anything is a blessing that makes us pray. Anything. Anything is is a blessing that draws us closer to God. 
Anything that increases our thoughts toward Him and our dependency upon Him is a blessing indeed. So as we turn back to the lame beggar that we were studying in the book of Acts, we noted that his needs were not going to be met by acquiring any type or any sum of money. I mean, think about it. Maybe he could put together enough change to purchase for himself a little bit of food, maybe some breadcrumbs to sustain himself for a day or two. But when it came down to it, reality was his legs wouldn't work. And more importantly, his soul was damaged and in desperate need of repair. So as Peter and John approach, we read about the man's expectations. Going back to verses 3 and 5, it says, When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Paul, along with John, looked straight at him and said, Look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. So this guy was probably used to people pretending he wasn't there. Even though he's parked right in front of that gate, people will probably um, turn their heads the other way as they, as they pass by him and, you know, so they can spare themselves from having to look at the pitiful sight that he must have been. And maybe they want to avoid being guilted into parting with some of their money. So the fact that Peter and John would not only stop and look and acknowledge him, must, that must have been a big deal to him, right? No one, no one really does that, right? Stop and speak to such a pathetic creature as he was. So they must have something for him, he, he's probably thinking. I imagine that the beggar is reaching out with his hand, expecting for uh, a few coins to be dropped into his palm. But what he received was much better than that. His expectations were low. He just wanted a couple of coins so maybe he could get some food. And the truth is, our expectations are low too. Man's aspirations tend to run along the lines of fame and fortune. And if not that, at least, at least comfort and ease in this life. That's, that's what man aspires to, right? How many of us say, if such and such were different, life would be so much easier? I know I've said that. Or how about this? If I could just get past this situation, if I could get, get through this and around this or, or, or over this, then things would just be a lot better. Right? How many of us have said that? Man's expectation that life should be comfortable and easy causes him to aspire to make these modifications, these changes in his life so that he can escape the difficulties, the inconveniences, the sufferings, the tragedies that accompany life. The, be the beggar thought a few bucks would make things just slightly less awful for him. However, the Bible tells us that we should have very different expectations and very different hopes. We read in Romans 8 this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves have the Spirit as the first fruits. 
we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now this is the hope. Now in this hope we have, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to, pray, uh, what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. So our expectations should be that though we live in this fallen, sin-sick world, groanings will turn to glory. Our present sufferings, as we just read in Romans 8, uh, will be eclipsed by the glory that's coming. All of this will be, all the, the pain and the suffering will be but a distant memory for us. We look forward with anticipation for creation to be set free from its bondage to sin and death and decay. Even though creation has been wounded by sin, the wounds are only temporary and the glory is forever. So as we, re- as we return to uh, our passage in Acts 3, uh, the lame beggar has his hand opened with an eager expectation of receiving something. Peter has no money on him, but he gives the man something else, something unexpected, something life-changing. Peter takes the beggar's outstretched hand. Instead of depositing some coins, he helps the man to stand up. We'll read it again in Acts. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. So all at once, those knees and feet and ankles, which hadn't done anything for 40 years, were suddenly and remarkably strong. The man instantaneously, no longer lame. He probably feels the strength in his legs for the first time ever. And he, he walks, he starts running and leaping, probably dancing, maybe even doing some backflips. I know I would do that. So God made those legs strong. And if God made those legs strong, then, then those legs are strong. He could probably run faster and jump higher than anybody else that was there. And notice that he didn't need to learn how to use these new legs of his. There, there were no tutorials necessary for him. There was no hesitant first steps like he was a newborn baby deer. None of that, right? He could use his legs as if he'd been using him his entire life. So the physical healing is awesome. It's amazing. But it points to something even grander. It's what we read about a little while ago in Romans chapter 8. Just like those legs were made new, so will this world, which is at this point currently horribly crippled by sin, it will be made new as well. Just like the man 
we can leap for joy and praise God for this fact. So let's return to uh, the blind man from John chapter 9. Remember, I said this wasn't the end of his story. So at this point, he's talking to the Pharisees, more like arguing with the Pharisees because the Pharisees don't like that he's not blind anymore and Jesus healed him. Um, so a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. The man continues, throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. No one's ever heard of that. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. So he's basically schooling the Pharisees at this point to the point that the Pharisees kick him out of the place. And then here comes Jesus, right? Jesus heard that, he had, that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. So once more, we have this man miraculously healed. However, the physical healing of the eyes was not the end of the story. As we notice, the, the question turns to, to this. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus who healed a man blind from birth? The formerly blind beggar reasons quite logically that this incredible healing was nothing short of the work of Almighty God, and by logical extension, that this man Jesus most definitely must be from God. Because whoever heard of such a thing, right? Somebody opening the eyes of a person born blind, this man's eyes had never functioned, and now he has perfect 2020 vision. But the removal of the physical blindness was nothing compared to Jesus granting the man spiritual sight, allowing him to see Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. In the end, the man sees Jesus in a more profound way than merely observing physical features, and he professes his belief in Jesus as Lord. Lord, I believe. Exclamation point. Glory to God. This is how um, Spurgeon summarizes this event. As soon as this man received his sight, the man called Jesus came to the forefront. Jesus became the most important person in existence. All he knew of Jesus at first was his name. And under that name was the whole horizon of his vision. Jesus was more to him than the learned Pharisees or than all his neighbors put together. Jesus was exceedingly great for he had opened the eyes for he had opened his eyes. Fixing his mind on Jesus, he saw more in him and declared, he's a prophet. He boldly said this at great personal risk to himself, telling it to the faces of the, of the complaining Pharisees. Soon after, he came to believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, and he worshipped him. So we'll also note similarities in, in this healing to the paralytic that we read about earlier in Matthew 9. Once again, the spiritual aspect is the forefront, and the physical healing is, is something of an afterthought, something in the background, really. 
Going back to Matthew chapter 9, we, we read earlier, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. So the man who was paralyzed has been declared to have his sins forgiven, completely wiped away. So this is the real win in this situation for the paralytic. It wasn't that his body was made strong again just to get old eventually and and die and decay somewhere in a tomb. And, And then what? What was the whole point of that? No, the true victory here was the victory over sin through Christ. Also notice the reaction of the crowds who witnessed the miracle. First, there was a great degree of astonishment. Who does that? Who tells a paralytic man to get up and walk? That doesn't happen, right? That's not something that we see every day. So as a result, we also see that these witnesses to the event gave glory to God. And we see a similar reaction from the restored man in Acts chapter 3. And here are the last two verses again. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled, filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. And apparently uh, the praise that this guy started, it was contagious. We'll read later in Acts chapter 4, verse 21, uh, it indicates that others joined this one slain man in glorifying God in heaven. So I think that's something that we can join in too. We can join in with those men and women who are praising God for, for this man's healing. We can join in and, uh, in the praising of the men and women throughout history and even to this day who have witnessed the mighty works of God. But let us also remember that these works are just a taste. They're just a foreshadow of the things to come when God will make all things new. And these trials the suffering that we see, the sorrows, the sadness, all these things that are part of our existence, all of these things will be a distant memory and the wounded will be wounded no more. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word and the promises that you have in there, Lord, that we can, that we can read and that we can hold on to, that we know that the, the sufferings that we see in this life, the, the, the trials, the tribulations, the, the, the tragedies, all of these things, Lord, you will make right one day. You will, you will take all of that away. There will be a distant memory. Jesus will come and bandage up the wounded like he promised. Lord, we thank you for, for just giving us these reminders from Scripture, Lord. When we see these healings, when we see uh, a blind man see, when we see a lame man walk, when we see a paralyzed man stand up, we know your mighty works are, are present with us, Lord, but we also know something much greater is true, Lord, that, that our, our spiritual wounds will be healed, that you will wipe us of our sins, Lord, that you uh, will take them away, far away from us, Lord as far as the east is from the west, and that we can stand before you 
righteous, justified because of what you did through your son Jesus and sending him to this earth to die on the cross, Lord. Lord, what, may we not forget this. May, may we leave here knowing and believing and living like all of this is true. Like these healings that we read about are just, just a taste of what you will do in our future, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, Lord. We praise you and we give you glory just like the people in, 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 in these accounts who saw your mighty works and give you glory. May we give you glory as well. In Jesus' name, amen.